I entitled today's message, Loyal to Death. We're going to be diving through chapter 2 of the book of Joshua, which in the Bible is being handed to you as page 152, and I'll repeat that again in case you miss it. But I want to draw your attention to a quote at the top of your page, and then as I give a bit of an intro, we'll talk about the fill in the blank, but the quote there, there's two of them. I want to draw your attention to the second, the one by Erwin McManus in a book called An Unstoppable Force. He said this, the New Testament word for witness is the same as for martyr. The purpose of the church cannot be to survive or even to thrive. But the purpose of the church must be to serve. And sometimes servants die in the soul. Do you remember the story of Esther? Right? We've been talking a little bit about Old Testament stuff. So let's talk about a woman who put her life on the line. Esther, a young lady, grabbed out of the crowds because of her physical beauty. Probably forced into a scenario she was not interested in. Being around a king that was wicked, scary, not necessarily a good guy. She then has to be paraded in front of this guy where he gets to pick her out primarily for sexual reasons. She then enters into his harem, one of many, only being able to see him periodically. That's probably a good thing. And along the way, her people, the Jewish people, are threatened with extinction. God taps her on the shoulder and says, I want you to put your life on the line for your people. That's a tough go. She is a servant, but she wasn't quite at that maturity place, so she balked at the idea. I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can. There's no way. Don't you understand? The king will just kill me. Because that's how it goes. I mean, if he didn't ask for me to come in, and I'm supposed to go in and see him and disrupt his schedule, that's reasons for execution in that kingdom. So she had to swallow the bitter pill and be reminded by her uncle that she's a servant. And sometimes servants die in the serving. Well, if you remember the story, she took that pill, walked into the king, and he extended his scepter to her, the scepter of mercy. She was able to intercede for her people, and it saved the nation. Paul said in the New Testament that there's glory to God in both his living and in his dying. I would suggest to you that it's likely that God may get more glory in your death than in your life. Why? Because as long as you're living, you can still smear his name. Right? Isn't that true? Yet somehow at every funeral, everyone becomes a saint. Everyone comes up and talks about them. No one ever says, you know what? They always ate all the potato chips, never shared. (laughs) Nobody ever shares the bad stuff. You know what? That guy was actually a jerk. You know what? He was lazy at work. No one ever says any of that stuff. It's always, he was so giving. Which means you can think of one time that he gave you something, right? In our death, there's this stamp. It was worth it. 
This is what I stand for. It's an exclamation point at the end of a run. Are you okay that your life is to bring glory to God, period? As a servant, God will choose whether that means death or it means life. For some of us, it will mean both. What happens if God asks you as a servant to die for him? Is that okay? I don't know if I'm at the maturity place in my life where that is okay. There's a lot of resistance in me. The only times I'm ever okay with that is probably right in the middle of a sermon. Right? I'm all fired up. I'm all into Jesus. My mind's completely loaded with him. And then maybe I'll, you know, if a gunman comes in, then I'm going to be like, I'll take you on. Right? If he comes at me any other time of the week, I will run away. Just letting you know right now. I will not protect you. Let's just be clear. Life and death bring glory to God. We are servants. This is a year of servanthood. This is something we must burn into our minds. The fill in the blank in front of you on your sheet is this. A good servant is loyal to his master, even to death. A good servant is loyal to his master, even to death. Where we are in the story is that the nation of Israel came out of Egypt after 400 years of bondage where we had this amazing scenario of the Passover where the angel of death swept through and killed the firstborn in Egypt and the Hebrews were saved by the blood on the doorframe. They then emerged out and they were chased by the Egyptian army and then the Red Sea parted. They went through and the Egyptian army was destroyed. As they were safe on the other side, God said, I want to take you to the promised land. I want to get you in the place where I need you. The leaders then assembled 12 spies to go out into the land. Check it out. When they came back, only two had a good report, ten had a bad report. The two good ones were a gentleman named Joshua, and the other guy was a man named Caleb. They said, we can do this. The ten guys said, no, we can't. The nation believed the majority, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years till they decided to get their act together. God waited for that generation of resistant servants to die. Intriguing. Immediately the question comes up in my mind, must God wait for the next generation of Bridgeway to be effective because we're too resistant to get anything done? I don't know. Maybe I'm not the pastor to get it done. Maybe, maybe I'm too resistant. I don't know. That's something we have to examine. I certainly want to be moldable. Now they've been... Moving forward, they gathered a little bit of land. They're on the other side of the Jordan River from the promised land. And they're waiting for God's word. A new leader has taken over. Moses died. Joshua took over. One of those spies. And God whispered to him and said, in three days we march. You ready to go? Joshua said, let's do this. That's where we pick up the story today. Would you turn with me to Joshua chapter 2 verse 1? Page 152. And the Bible's handed to you. 
What we're going to do is just go through these in small chunks. As I relate the story, I want to reflect back on it for a moment in study. So we're going to read verses 1 through 3 together, and then we'll pray for the word, and then we'll go on from there. But it begins like this. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, tonight as we walk through the halls of history and see you move, may our faith increase, may our lives be submitted to you. May we own the idea of being your servant either in life or in death. And as we read of another woman who puts her life on the line for you, may we grow into character like that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It says, And Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies. Now, what does he mean secretly? Does he mean secretly to where they're spying out? I think that's obvious. I think it's more than that. I think it was secretly to Israel. They didn't even know the two spies went out. Why? Probably because Joshua was a little gun shy. Why? Do you remember what happened last time he got sent out as a spy? When the other ten guys said it was a bad idea, and he and his buddy said it was a good idea, the nation threatened to stone him. He almost lost his life because he tried to stand up for what's good. He realized that the nation followed the majority, and they've been wandering around the desert for 40 years for no reason. At least in his mind. So he's not about to let these spies be known, because he knows that God already said, we march in three days, I don't care what your spies say. But he doesn't need the bad morale coming back. And the spies going, there's no way we're going to do that. He already knows that that will turn the hearts of the people wrong. So he said, you guys go out secretly. I want you to do reconnaissance. I want you to get back here and I want you to tell me what I need to know. Go find out some information for me. Now it said this. He sent the two spies from Shatim. We must pause there. Why? Because of the word. So last night, I come up here to preach. And because of the name, I went on Merriam's Webster Dictionary online. I hit the little button that says pronounce audibly. (laughs) Shatim means acacia trees, plural. Shata means one tree. So I pushed the little button, making sure I know how it's pronounced. Shitta. Shitta. I kept hitting it over and over. Constantly. I said, Russ, get in here. Shitta. I'm like, really? Come on. So I preached it that way last night. Then I had all my Hebrew folks come up and go, it's pronounced Shatim. And I was like, all right, whatever. Okay, so the web search is wrong. I was led astray by American culture. I'm only human. But make no mistake, I am immature enough to not get past this word. Amen. 
It means acacia trees. That's all we're going to say. And acacia wood is crucial in Scripture. Why? Because that's what the Ark of the Covenant was made of. That's what all the tabernacle pieces were made of. Then they were overlaid with gold. This is a precious tree. It just has a horrible name. And this area was named for a grove of acacia trees that were very valuable. They launched out from there. We're now seven miles from the Jordan River. On the other side of the Jordan River, if you go seven more miles, you hit Jericho. So we're 14 miles from Jericho. He sent them out and said, go look over the land. He said, especially Jericho. As the rugged mountains sweep down into a valley that goes through the middle of the land, the first major citadel or fortress is Jericho. If you can take Jericho, you can begin to start splitting the land, and it's a strategic move. So sure enough, he said, go look over the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Why in the world did they go there? Right? Now, everyone's got their opinions. Hey, I've been in the desert 40 years. Okay, I get it, right? That's not why. Here's the deal. Joshua would have selected two guys, and he would have selected them very carefully, because last time, the right guys weren't chosen. I don't think he's going to make that mistake again. So he gets two solid guys that would be locked on their project. They don't get a chance to stay there for very long. They have to hit the mission hard, get out of there, and get back because they're marching in three days. They don't have time to mess around. They don't have time to be joking around. So they get into the city, and now they find themselves heading into a prostitute's house. We have two immediate questions. First one, was she really a prostitute? Number two, why did they go there? Let's handle the first issue. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tried to save her reputation and say that she was an innkeeper or a hotel keeper. What would be the modern day or maybe a bed and breakfast type gal? Because the word in Hebrew can be used for both. Innkeeper, prostitute. Because they had a tendency to be synonymous. Now... If we only had the Old Testament, we would still be left wondering. But we don't just have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. In James chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 11, it says very clearly and distinctly, Rahab's a prostitute. That solves the conversation. You better believe she was. Was she active in it? Every indicator in the story, everyone believed that she was. That makes the story a little bit different. Why did they go there? Here's a couple guesses. Now, the least likely is that the guys were going through the city, and then all of a sudden, here come the guards, so they ducked in there to hide. Not likely. They're probably more planned than that. They came in in the evening. Maybe that was one of the only places that was open. It's probably more strategic. I would suggest to you that if you're a foreigner walking into this, and this is an international marketplace, a lot of different nations went through this area. But when you're a foreigner, foreigner, one of the very few places you're going to be questioned is in a brothel. So they could merely walk in. There's always people coming and going. There's no questions asked. It's all about the money. It has nothing to do with, I wonder why you're here. Hey, let's talk about the day. That was not it. They knew they could get into that area hide, no one would ask questions, and then it would likely not be searched by the police. I think it was a very strategic move. Not only that, but one commentary mentioned this. 
If you're going to go look for a place that would give up their nation, this is a good place to start. Why? There's no loyalty to the city. They're only there for money. They've probably been treated poorly by the majority of women and men in that city. They have no loyalty. So if you wanted to get information on the city and they knew you were a foreigner, they may well give it to you. I think the last reason is this. Who knows more about the city? She probably knows every guard. She probably knows everybody in politics. She knows all the way through, right? She's like, you want to know about Jericho? I'll tell you about Jericho, and I'll tell you what no one else will tell you. They went in, got all the information they needed, but they're not very good spies. Look at the next line. The king of Jericho, and he's a local king, was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land, so they're not that great at what they do. They were found out right away. The king of Jericho was told, so the king sent his message to Rahab, meaning through a messenger. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Hmm, how did he know? Not only that, why is he in dialogue with this lady? Don't you assume that if he really believed there were spies that were trying to find out information, they just stormed the area? Why not just burst your way in and just take whoever you want? Somehow, some way, there was a respect level that was going on here. And we don't know why. Now, granted, the way that it's written in Hebrew, there's a lot of suggestions that the king is making about what she does for a living. He's messing with her a little bit. All right? He's suggesting, going, I know you think these guys are here for you. And I know you know why you think they're here. I'm just going to tell you you've been misled. They're actually spies, as if that's new information to her. Well, take a look at how she responds. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. When did she do that? Before the guards arrived? How did she know guards were coming? Check this out. She knows they're spies before the king does. The king then sends out a contingency of guards. She knows that he sent out the guards before he did. Talk about a connected lady. She knows everything going on. She had already hid them way before they ever arrived. She's always one step ahead of the game. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men did come to me. That is true, right? Of course, they're still there. Now, the guys are hiding at this time. They have no idea what the conversation's going on downstairs. They don't know if they're going to be found out, tortured, killed. They have no idea what's going to happen next. So they're shaken, and she's having this dialogue. So it starts out with, yes, the men came to me. That is true. But I did not know where they had come from. That's called a lie. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. That's a second lie. I don't know which way they went. That's a third lie. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. That is a fourth lie. Why? Because verse 6, but she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. A couple questions. What are stalks of flax? Right? And most of you don't care. I care. So I had to go back and research it. Right? 
These are a reed-like plant. They're about three feet long. What you do is you take them out and they make linen. But in order to get them useful, you soak them in water for three to four weeks, loosen them up, separate the fibers out. Once you get those out, you lay them out, big old plants, fanned out, lay them out to dry in the sun. The best place to do that is on the roof of your house, which is a flat area, veranda. They then lay out not just a few plants, but tons of them, so it almost looks like a thatched roof. Underneath those, she could hide two men. This is like a huge stack of plants. It's not like there was one little plant laying on each guy, right? They're like, isn't that a guy under the plant? No, it's a big pile of plants, right? She had gone up and hidden them. Now she puts her life on the line because if she's found out to be a traitor, she's dead. She puts her life on the line to hide these men. Why? After all, Everyone else would have written her off for being useful to God's kingdom, right? Oh, she can't help anybody. What does she do for a living? Oh, that's right. Are you sure? I seem to remember that in the New Testament, Jesus was anointed by somebody that also knew everybody in town. Hmm. Then it says this. So the men, meaning the guards, set out in pursuit of the spies... Wait a second, what? They believed her at her word. She flat out lied to them. They bought the whole thing. Why would they believe her word? How much respect does this lady have? They went, oh, okay, I guess she must be telling the truth. So we don't have very good spies. We don't have very good guards. Okay, so far everybody's kind of lame in this story. Except for her. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. That's places to cross in the Jordan. That is the most obvious route where they would have run to get back home. She sends them that way and says, oh, hurry up. You can go get them. All right. Now, the reason why they would run after them is because at this time, we know it's early harvest time because of the flax thing. And the river was swollen wide, huge, because the Jordan River is flowing with water at this time. So the guys would have a hard time crossing fast. So they thought they could catch up with them. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. They are safe for a moment, but they don't know it yet. All right. A couple things that we need to understand. First issue, dealing with Rahab's lies. There's all these commentaries written and going, how do you excuse the lies? How is that cool with God? How is it possible that God has has given her the right to just lie? Isn't lying a sin? Stop. First of all, the Bible never condoned it. It just recorded it. There's a lot of stuff recorded in the Bible that God's not really into. Second of all, I think it's a bit more realistic, don't you? She did what she knew at the time. I don't know how advanced she was in her faith, but this is what she knew to do, and she did it. The Bible didn't say it was okay. But isn't this a little bit more like what really happens? Would God have moved if she wouldn't have lied? If she went, you know what, actually, yeah, okay, they're here, they're hidden. You've got to find them, right? I mean... Could God have blinded the eyes of the guards? Yeah, he could have. But you know what? Why is the sin still sitting in your life that you have? God could clearly take it away right now. But you're not quite there yet, are you? So God uses you in the midst of your sin. There's nothing different with Rahab. 
she didn't quite have the faith to be able to tell the truth. And I think the spies were pretty thankful for that. But she lied. Doesn't make it right. Makes it realistic. Here's the major issue that I got out of this. God uses everyone. Here is a woman who for every reason in the world should assume that God's not looking at her. Right? She's in a pagan nation. Everybody knows that God's with the Jews. They're on the other side of the river. God's not with Jericho, at least in her mind. Why would God have any interest in pagan people? She thinks to herself. And if God did have interest, why in the world would he be looking at me, a prostitute? Clearly, I'm not doing what the Jews say is okay to do. So God doesn't even like me. God won't even use me. I know he's real. I know he's legitimate. However, there's no way he has interest in me. He could never use me. This one girl saves a nation of people. Verse 8, before the spies lay down for the night, what? When we finish the story, they bail out at nighttime. So why are they laying down? That either means they're hiding or that means that they were probably exhausted from all the events and they took a nap. Either way, they're hiding underneath there. Maybe they're just waiting for a couple hours for the coast to be clear. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof. Now, this is the first time they learn they're safe. And she said to them, now watch the faith of this Gentile, this non-Jew. Check out what she says. I know that Yahweh, that's the personal name of God. How in the world does she know that? Because God always goes ahead of his people. You think God's going to wait for the Jews to go fix everything? He better not, because he can't wait for Christians either. God had already been in Jericho. This is what we don't get. We always assume that we're the first ones on the front line. God lives in Haiti. You understand what I'm saying? He's already been there. He's already pushed his name. He already showed people, contacted people, engaged with people. By the time these guys get there, God has done all the heavy lifting. And that's how it is when you share your faith. You are not the first ones to arrive. God has spoken to their hearts before you ever got there and paved the way. I know that Yahweh has given this land to you. How did you know that? Because 40 years ago, 2 million people didn't know that. Right? That's why they wandered for 40 years. I know that Yahweh has given this land to you. The Jews aren't convinced of that, yet a Gentile goes, it's a pretty no-brainer to me. Yeah, we're going down. She is in one of the most highly fortified cities in that whole region. And she goes, well, we're done. Why would she ever think that? Well, she explains. I know that Yahweh has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Whoa. As a matter of fact, God said that would happen in Exodus 15, 23 and Deuteronomy 2. He said, I will make the people's hearts melt in fear. 
Why? Because God is interested in getting something done. He's not just leaving it to people. God was going to make them successful in their endeavor. And the enemy was scared to death. Remember how I told you as we began this series how to make this series personal to your life. Whenever we talk about them going into the promised land and taking territory, I want you to relate it to Jesus Christ setting you free and saying, Now, get out that junk that's in your life. Root out all that sin, all those secrets, all that bad stuff that's still hanging out in there. Let's get it out. Do you understand that if there's any demonic stronghold in your life, the enemy is extremely nervous because Jesus did all the heavy lifting and they are melting in fear at the sound of Jesus' name. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. Really? You heard about that? Yeah, everybody heard about that. That was on a world stage. But what's intriguing is it happened 40 years earlier, and I would suggest to you that Rahab is younger than 40. That means it's now become an urban story that everybody knows. She wasn't even alive during the time. We've heard what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. That story is in Numbers chapter 21. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed us because of you. In other words, the enemy seems to know the power of God, but the children of God don't seem to know the power of God. That's weird. Now then, she says, meaning since God is on your side, please swear to me by the Lord, meaning really mean it, that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. That word kindness is kesed in the Hebrew, and it means more than kindness. It means that I have made a promise to you that I will be by your side and I will support you and I will stay true to what I said to you, no matter what the odds are, no matter what the consequences are, and I will never break my covenant with you ever. That's what kesed means. That's a pretty powerful word. It means a lot more than kindness. Right? Isn't kesed what every one of us dream about at the altar when we get married? Isn't that what we trying, we're trying to say? Is a loyal, covenant, steadfast faithfulness. That's the word here. She said, I showed you how it works. I put my life on the line for you. How about you return the favor? A Gentile is teaching the Jews how to be like God. Wow. Give me a sure sign, she said, that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Wouldn't it be a lot easier if she just looked out for herself? Then she doesn't have to get everybody else involved. I mean, the more people that she gets involved, the more people are going to know, then word's going to get out and she's going to get busted. Yet she risked all of that to save her family. Why? Because that's what changed hearts do. She believes so strongly in God that she knows that this is going to happen no matter what. So she puts her life on the line to save her family. 
and she tries to make a covenant. Now, let's hit one last issue before we move on, and that is this. People are complicated. I hope that the longer you stay in this church, you understand this. I've got to burn this into our minds. People are complicated. People are messy. No, it's not like you want it. Where you try to make a little category of good guys and the category of bad guys. That is not true. Everybody's mixed motives. Everybody's got issues going on. Everybody's the same. Praise God that Jesus Christ has rescued some of us, saved us, and is beginning to change us. But make no mistake, it's not clean cut. There's no clear categories. Why and how does God use a prostitute for his most important missions in life while she's still a prostitute? Until you understand that, you don't understand yourself. Because you still think you're in a different category. You're in process too. God has never used a servant that was wholly surrendered other than Jesus. We're all mixed up, right? Here I am, standing before you, preaching to you, with all the confidence in the world, knowing full well that if my life was displayed for you accurately, you would stop listening to me. God uses me. You let me because you don't all know me. Hers is overt. You judge her and you don't judge me. Why? You think we're different quality? I would suggest that he has, she has greater faith than I. That's how God works. It's complicated. We move on to the next verse, verse 14. How did the spies respond? Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Remember, they're not out of the woods yet. She may change her mind. Run back, bust them, ruin everything. But right now, it looks like they're on. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house that she lived in was part of the city wall. All right. Here's how it works. There's been a lot of excavations done at the Jericho site. This is a legitimate city, and here's how it worked. Back when Jericho was in its heyday, there was two walls on the outside. They're 30 feet tall, okay? Really, really tall walls. 30 feet tall, and then they had two walls separated by air in between. The outer walls were 6 feet thick. The inner walls were 12 feet thick, with a span of 15 feet between them, okay? So you go 6 feet, 15 feet, 12 feet. Across that 15-foot span, they would put wood across the top so that in a busy city, they could build out on the wall. That's where she lived, was on the wall so that her window looked out over the edge of the city. So she was partly on the wall and partly in the wall. She was certainly in the city. It was a great place for them to escape from. Why did they really go here? Because God directed them here. I mean, that's really it. God wanted to save Rahab. God listened to everything that was going on in her life. And God maneuvered everything to rescue her and her family. Listen to this. So she let them down the rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And now she said to them, go to the hills. That's the opposite direction from home. 
so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, then go your way. Off in the location where they ran, there were limestone cliffs about 1,500 feet tall with a honeycomb of caves where they could hide for a long time. She had sent the pursuers one way, she sent them the other way, and she's masterminding this whole process to keep them safe. The men said to her, verse 17, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window which you let us down. That's a visible sign. We all clear? Tie this red scarlet cord on the window so that when we attack, they can't tell everybody what to do. They can merely tell the nation of Israel, hey, the cord window, leave it alone. Don't touch that place. But everyone's not going to remember, so they have to have some visible reminder. You can't go, remember, 13B, don't go in there. Okay. When you're hacking people to death and you're running for your life, you're just going to kill everyone. So you have no idea what's going on. You need a big, huge reminder. It's a scarlet cord. And this is interesting. It says, unless you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood's going to be on his own head. We will not be responsible for that. As for anyone who's in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is ever laid on him. What is this starting to sound like to you? Passover. Remember the story I just related that happened 40 years prior and Joshua was in the house? What was it? God is going to sweep through a judgment. He's going to kill the firstborn in every household. Unless you what? Take the blood of a lamb and mark your door. What color is blood? What color is the cord? Red. Until you mark your house and then we will pass over it. Same exact thing. The only people that got saved in the Passover were those that gathered in the house with the blood. Same exact repeating issue over and over and over again. We're all saved by the blood and you need to be under him to be rescued. We got that? All right, we'll move on. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath that you made us swear. In other words, you keep your side, we'll keep our side. Agreed, she said, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now, do you understand that she has risked her whole life now? Now it's on them. What if they forget? What if they don't care? What if they go, it's a prostitute? What do we care? And they never even tell Joshua. That's a lot of faith. That's why she is in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. She's right next to... Abraham and Sarah, this woman. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there for three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back and they went down out of the hills, forded the river by swimming, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. And they told Joshua, the Lord was surely and has surely given the whole land into our hands and all the people are melting in fear because of us. The servants did their part. Now it's up to God. The servants risked their life. Rahab the servant risked her life. Now everything's on God. I want to close with two thoughts. 
Number one, God asked all three major characters in the story to put their life on the line. That's a big deal. Number two, please hear me on this. God uses every servant with a willing heart. But I'm not there yet. I'm not. And you never will be this side of heaven. But whatever your excuse is, if your heart is open to serve the Lord, his eyes are upon you and he will use you. I know things are not the way they should be. I know your life is chaotic. I know you have junk in there that we don't know about. Serve the Lord. It is in the act of serving that he begins to purify out a lot of that garbage. As long as you hold your life back and never engage and go out on a limb with the Lord, you'll be content to leave that junk there because there's no reason to get it out. But when he calls you, you're shocked to get his phone call. Me? Yes, you. And you start to walk. Suddenly that baggage holds you back. Then it matters to get rid of it. I just think we might have things backwards in our minds. I just want to encourage you that whatever you think you're not equipped to do, God is. And He will be tapping you on the shoulder. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. That you would include a story of a woman who felt forgotten. A woman who never believed that she would amount to anything. A woman that never thought that you would care about her or use her. Certainly not in a capacity like this. And use her you did. And then... You did the unthinkable. You involved her into the line of Jesus. You wrote down in Holy Scripture so everyone would read her story, that everyone would know who she was and who she became. So God, use us as you have used her. May our faith rise up to equal that of a woman who was all alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.